This is Booch News with Ian Griffin, a podcast all about kombucha. I'm on the phone today with Sebastian Bureau, the founder of Mananova Solutions, which is located out there in Montreal, Canada. How are you doing, Sebastian? Hey, I'm going. I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, great. Yeah, I'm curious to know about the history of Mananova. It looks from I saw Instagram. You sort of started posting sometime in 2018. Um, when was the company founded, and and how did it come about? Right. Uh, so I, um, you know, I began my career um, at. Uh, so I studied molecular biology uh, at University of Montreal, basically with a concentration of plant plant biology. Um, you know, I was basically trained to to work for Monsanto as a genetic engineer, uh, and then you know pretty quickly realized that that's not at all what I wanted to do. Um, and then uh, and so I uh, I switched to uh, to microbiology. And so kind of like playing around with a lot of uh, uh, microbiology and food fermentation and things like that, um, I fell into a company called Rise Kombucha. Um, basically, this was almost 10 years ago where we, uh, you know, we, we, we were making kombucha very artisanally, you know, uh, basically a closet and, you know, and all the problems that come with making kombucha in a closet. You know, we scaled up and in a couple of years into it, about five years into it, uh, you know, we had moved and we were in a, a very large factory you know, doing very well, but we were having people calling us all the time going, hey, you know, I'm in uh, Slovenia, I'm in Russia, I'm in Chile, I'm in Argentina, can you help me, you know, with my kombucha business, or I'd like to start a kombucha business, and, you know, as, a, as a, the, the head of R&D at Rise, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, time, there's time constraints, but there's also conflict of interest, um, you know, being a, being a, at the time, I was also a, you know, a shareholder of, of Rise Kombucha. And so I decided to, I decided to kind of just go ahead and, and uh, you know, lead Rise and uh, start my own business um, doing consulting. So the idea was uh, to be the guy that I wanted, that I would have loved to have when I started. And so that was about five years ago. Um, yeah, actually, yeah, five years ago. Uh, actually, it's going to be six in November uh, that oh. we started. And so very much started on yeah. It very, started very organically in the sense that, uh, you know, I would just kind of uh, go to, you know, Europe or, and, and, or, or you know, or, or South America or Australia and kind of sleep on people's couches, um, you know, while, while teaching them, you know, how to make kombucha for a week or two. And then um, it's kind of built up from that. And today, you know, yeah. we do education primarily. Um, you know, we do research and development. Uh, and we produce some raw materials for the kombucha industry. Right. I've seen that on your website. It's pretty clear that you've got three aspects to your business, which I'd like to go through. Uh, and one of them is still consulting. Uh, then you've got the, the master class and then the uh, mana K, which we can talk about, the raw material. And so as you began, you said kind of sleeping on people's couches. It was obviously a, a time when many, many people who'd maybe been home brewing were trying to, you know, look at the business opportunity and needed to scale up from, you know, I, I brew my own at home as well, and I've got like three or four gallons going in in the garage. But if if you're starting a commercial company, what is scaling up? It seems to be a theme of Mananova. Is that it? Obviously, covers a lot of aspects, but is is that the key? 
technical challenge that, that new brewers face that you help in your consulting to help them address? Um, well, I mean, I like to, I mean, yeah, I like to just, I mean, there's no key technical challenge. It's really just the whole thing. It's, you know, there's a million mistakes you can make um, that are you're each, you know, going to have their own cost. And so, you know, if I can, if I can avoid you as many of those, uh, those mistakes as possible by just teaching you the ones that I've made, uh, okay. then, you know, everyone's a winner. Um, and, yeah. you know, in the end, like, you know, the, the like, I guess the main driving force, um, you know, if, if kombucha was unstable, just unstable, it might be okay. If kombucha was just, you know, you know sometimes it didn't taste good or sometimes it, 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 just, it just gushed, you know, that would be okay. But I'd say like, I'd say, uh, you know, the main issue that people deal with eventually, especially once they've, you know, started producing uh, larger batches and kind of they're fully invested in their kombucha, they realize that, you know, they are, they're running between 1% and 2% alcohol in their product uh, while claiming to have, you know, under 0.5. And so that's really, you know, that's where I go from being useful to be kind of indispensable. Right, right. And maybe I'll address that question in another way. If you must have dealt or been in conversations in your classes with many dozens of people who are new, I'm imagining some of them probably have been producing for a while and they come to your class to get more sophisticated. But for the new brewer, for, a, for somebody you know, who wants to make that first leap into um, commercial production, obviously, like you said, there's not one thing that you can teach them. But if you had to pick, like maybe what are the two or three main things that they need to be aware of that maybe would be the three main takeaways from the class, if you can put it that way? Um, yeah, okay. I'd say, I'd say the first one is probably um, you've got to make a difference. You've got to differentiate, you know, if you're, if you're trying to make your client happy or your culture happy. Uh, you know, uh, a happy culture is unstable. It creates, uh, you know, it creates a lot of alcohol. Uh, it's, you know, it's super variable. Um, all things that you don't want your client to have to deal with. And so, you know, you do want your culture to be super happy and you want to have it, give it those occasions for it to be super happy, happy and thrive and all that. But you also want, you know, to, to have a product that, that, you know, is relatively stable, relatively non-alcoholic and relatively reproducible. So, so, kind of helping people distinguish or kind of like, you know, understand that, that, uh, you know, sometimes you're growing the culture and sometimes you're making a product that's, that's, you know, made for a market is, uh, I'd say one of the biggest things to, one of the biggest, uh, things to kind of help people or that I like to help people understand is that when you brew right. kombucha, you got to know, you know, what's this kombucha going to do? Is it supposed to? Is it supposed to make the culture happy, or is it supposed to make a client happy? And they're not necessarily the same. They both have a role in a kombucha business, but you brew them at different moments. And so, um, so that's number one. Number two, I'd probably say is like uh, stop carrying around buckets. I mean, there's it's, it's an easy there's an easy reflex. Like we're all used to just carrying around buckets, like a kitchen, right? But uh, at some point, you know, when you're carrying around a you know a 20 liter bucket 40 times a day. Like some people go, oh man, I wish there was a better way, and and uh, and just like doing that transition from moving things with your arms and your and your muscles to using pumps, um, that, I'd say that's you know that's a it's an interesting step, um, you know it's kind of a growth uh, in your market. Mm -hmm. And finally, I think number three is safety. So safety, 
I'm not talking about food safety because that's not really like it's not really a problem with kombucha. Um, I'm really talking about safety of people in your factory. You know, whenever I go into work, which is which is pretty often, I guess. Um, you know, and whenever I walk into the factory, and I go, "Hey, you guys remember what your number one job is?" And everyone knows that their job is their number one job is not to make kombucha. Uh, their number one job is not to you know is not to uh, come in on time, and it's not to you know it's not to like do exactly what I say. Their number one job is to not get hurt. And so you know, there's a huge emphasis on safety, and every step of the way, and every single thing that we, every single thing that we teach, the first aspect of safety is how do you avoid getting hurt. How do you make uh-huh. sure that? How do you make sure that 99% of the ways, 99, yeah, 99% of the ways that you can get hurt are avoided, uh, so that you know your company can thrive and you're not, you know, dealing with injuries or or, or the fear of injuries or you know or or the, you know, all of the all the things that that come down with that. So I think those are the, probably the three aspects that uh, that that I teach that are yeah. kind of the most important for me, and I'd say are the most important for for uh, for our clients. Yeah, I I I, uh, I hear what you're saying about safety. I of course people are dealing with boiling liquids and heavy, often stainless steel or some other heavy items. Yeah, that, and, uh, and cleaning. Yeah, and cleaning products. Yeah, yeah. Like okay, well. Cleaning products. Um, of course, the, your class, uh, your master class, is that typically one or two days? Is there a typical length that people sign up for that you deliver a class? Uh, so the, the so the master class is a you know it's a permanent sign up, right? It's a it's an online class. You can watch it whenever. Um, I'm a really big fan of watching it in the course of a week. You just kind of take a week and you kind of just take the class at home. You just go through all the material, and so you can kind of just have that week. It's like if you were taking the class. So. You know, the master class was born from uh, a class that I started giving at White Labs, a two-day class on kind of commercial com- commercial kombucha brewing, a class that evolved as I gave it about 25 times. Um, you know, I started giving it in Montreal, and I gave it, uh, you know, a couple places in Europe. I think I gave it in Australia as well. Um, and uh, and basically, you know, every time I would, people would integrate, people would ask questions, and I'd kind of integrate the information that they asked into the class. And eventually around the, cl- around the you know, the 20th time, I realized I wasn't changing the classes anymore. I wasn't adding stuff. I wasn't reformulating. I wasn't, and I, I went, okay, it's time to record this. Also, you know, realizing that, you know, realizing that uh, the carbon footprint on having all these people travel all the time is terrible, and the cost of it, you know, for these startups. Um, and so, so basically, we, you know, we found a, we found um, kind of like a, uh, a format that's kind of great for everyone because you know we can, you can use the master class to teach your staff. You know, the staff how to clean, how to brew, how to do everything, and we're never, you know, we're never tired when you watch the master class. Like Tom and I, who, who who give you the master class, are always at our best, taking the time to do everything right. So, um, so I'd say, yeah, you take it for a week, or you take it over the course of a week. There's tests and there's documents that you can take. There's tests that you do while you're watching the videos, and all that to really help to help you integrate the information. And then after that, well, six months later, when you go, hey, how was I supposed to CIP a tank again? Well, then you can just watch that same video and just do exactly what we say in the video. Okay. So and if it actually, questions, you can just write to us, and we're always available. Yeah. So. And and it was perfect for the current situation where COVID nineteen has come along and people aren't traveling for a whole bunch of reasons. So you you were ahead of the game in that sense, delivering it online. Yeah. I mean, that's, it was uh, Paul Seahorse, Seahorse from Fairman who told me to who told me to do this. So. It's all his idea. We just, you know, we just listened. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the other big uh, thing I think that Mananova is known for that I, I remember you talked about in Berlin and um, I think was part of the virtual conference that um, Kombucha Brewers International held is the availability, which I'd like you to explain a little about the what you call Mana K, which is, I understand it, is a, as a starter liquid or a concentrate for people to um, to purchase from you, I guess. And I see these in on your website. I forgot what they're called, but there's these big oblong plastic containers of it, many gallons or liters. Uh, I think there's a name for them. But can you tell me the story of Mana K? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, the story of Mana K is so, you know, it's always been kind of in my classes I taught people. I go, I go you know, the Belgians um, have a great idea when making beer is they take old, really old beer that's gotten really nice and mature and kind of noble, and they, they, they blend it with younger beer. And, it, uh, that's, and they have you know, their wild, wild beers as well that are always different, and so they blend them to make sure they have reproducibility. And basically that's what inspired, um, that's what inspired Manike, um, or basically that's what inspired the, the production methods that I, that I work with that are you know, very much based around you know, blending methods. Um, because it's no, you know, it's no secret that uh, if you take kombucha and you ferment it for 14 days, you'll get something that's pretty alcoholic. But if you ferment it for six months, then you get something that's really high in, in organic acids but really low in alcohol. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the main thing that I teach. That's the main scientific, scientific basis um, behind a lot, of, a lot of what we do. Um, and, so, and so, you know, it's, when I started off my consulting, you know, I would go, yeah, just uh, let some stuff get old. You know, just, just make as much as you humanly can um, and let it age because, you know, at some point, you know, you'll be growing exponentially and then you'll need it. And, uh, and without fail, every single, uh, every single producer, you know, would run out because, you know, because it would grow so quickly um, and, you know, there'd be such a demand. Um, and so they would run out of their own, you know, old kombucha. And so and then, you know, a couple of years ago, let's say four years ago, people go like, what do I do? I go, well, you got to wait. And then people get really upset, right? Because, you know, you're at the peak of your business. Everything's going great. Um, you know, everything's going great. And, uh, and, you know, but you run out of product. And so, you know, your branding is on point. Everything's perfect. They said you just ran out of product. And so, and so at some point I went, okay, it's like, this is not funny anymore. Like, we know that there's, a, we know that people need this. So, uh, so we just started offering it. We started offering it and it kind of just picked up and then, uh, and it's become an option for a lot of a lot of producers who, uh, you know, who either integrate it, uh, you know, into their product as a regular base in a regular basis, or really only during like crunch times when, when uh, you know, when it's peak summer, and you know their demand has been three times higher than they thought. And so you know we uh, we teamed up with um, with Dennis Keller from Good Culture, uh, who uh, you know who's a, who's extremely knowledgeable. Um, and and a huge hippie, despite his appearance. His appearance, um, you know. Actually, you may, sometimes you can spot him wearing, you know, five finger or five five finger shoes. And the okay. But um, but anyway, you know, who's a who's a, a became a really great partner to help uh, distribute, you know, uh, Manike across Europe and and in Australia and pretty much wherever else you would want it. And so basically, it's allowed us to really concentrate on you know quality of product and doing R and D. And then, and Dennis has been concentrating on really, you know, staying available uh, and making sure that that uh, you know, Manike is not only a you know a product that that you can you know help, that helps you with your production, but also kind of just comes with 
um, whatever you know, whatever help you might need from our expertise team, and he helps he helps that. So, so it's kind of like. Uh, Sorry, for, for how, how's, it, how's it work? How's it working oh, in, in work? the facility in Montreal? I mean, Dennis is in, I guess, out somewhere in the UK. Uh, you said Australia. I mean, if I'm a kombucha company in France or Spain or Louisiana, um, do, you, do you truck it across, um, like in a big container, for people to uh, use then in their fermentation from your facility to theirs? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so you know, there's a there's this distinction to be made. It's not necessarily a starter culture. Like it's it's designed so that it it's the most cost effective possible. So it's actually you know it's a really old kombucha, and so you know the the culture in it is kind of like it's you know it's very uh, it's very bacteria oriented, not so much yeast. And so I wouldn't use it as a starter culture. What I do is I'll brew a kombucha and then I'll add manicay into it at the end to just make it perfect. You go, okay, this mm-hmm. is this kombucha is good, but it's not quite sour enough. Um, or, uh, you know, there's, there's various ways of using it, you know, either at the beginning, middle, or end of your fermentation. But uh, usually you're only using a, a few percent, you know, three, four, five percent in your final product. And so, so yeah, we ship, uh, and actually this is like, this is my greatest defeat as a, you know, as a, as a, a kombucha guy is that I'm shipping, you know, product across the world. Um, you know, I really, and I fought it for a long time, uh, you know, telling people, well, you just got to, you know, you just got to make it yourself. Um, and I still teach people how to make it themselves, you know, and put emphasis on that. But, uh, but the reality is that there's always a demand for it. And so, you know, so, so there's, so we keep on, we keep on, you know, we, we've gotten really good, um, you know, at, at get, getting the reproducibility and getting the, getting the strength up of the product so that, you know, we don't need to ship volumes that are too high. Uh, and, you know, we concentrate on that, but, uh, but yeah, you know, if you want to, if you're in Louisiana, then you'd ship, we ship from Montreal. If you're uh, in, uh, you know, if you're in the UK, then we ship from our, our, um, you know, we have a couple places that we store it in, uh, in the European Union and in, and, uh, and in the UK. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Australia as well. Um, you know, we, uh, we, uh, we sometimes have uh, uh, some stock uh, that we keep there. So, so basically it oh. makes it so that, uh, it, it makes it so that uh, the, the benefit is that, you know, we ship a full container at a time. So, you know, uh, like a 18 or 36 tons. And then uh, all the producers in Europe will benefit from, uh, from the, you know, the, the, the lowered cost of shipping it all at once. It also allows them to have it, you know, in two or three days. So, okay. Okay. So people, uh, it said... has a five-year shelf life and it's uh, non-refrigerated. Okay. Yeah, and what clarified it for me, I didn't realize you, the the um, the producers are only using three to four to five percent to even out the product uh, that they're making. So it's not that uh, that was my, going to be my other question. Obviously, every kombucha company has a distinct um, flavor profile and and so on. Um, it's not going to make every kombucha taste the same. If they've added manakay, it's it's um, no no. It's, it, so it doesn't have you know it has a, it's it's a, it's green tea, uh, it's green tea, sugar and water and kombucha culture. So just like scoby, um, and uh, and so it's a it's you know it's a solid base, but it's the same base that pretty much everyone has. And so um, and you can add it to your own starter. So often people will brew their own you know really high tea concentration starter that has their own you know taste profile to it, and then they'll kind of blend them together. Um, yeah. And so, no, no, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, uh, 
it doesn't make it so that all the kombuchas taste the same. And you know that's kind of what we do is when we you know when we supply the product, we also we also give support on formulation and we help people really kind of distinguish themselves in their flavor, um, in their flavors, in their in their you know prof- in their aromatic profiles and their sweetness and just just really help them accompany them so that they can really get the product that they want. You know, while yeah, being able yeah. to scale it up, while having that that security, that um, that security and that quality that comes with our product. So that's interesting. What are some of the other services you offer? For instance, on your web page, I see it mentions co-packing. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, we do actually. So basically, you know, the idea is that if it's new and interesting and and innovative, then we basically just say yes to any project. So. You know, for example, uh, where are some a couple? So yes, we do, we do, uh, we don't actually bottle, but uh, we keg and we can prepare 1,000 liter IBCs. They're called IBCs, and stands for uh, Intermediate Bulk Container, the squares that you were talking about before. And, oh, okay. Um, basically, so, yeah, we can we pr- we often produce that. Uh, we often produce that and ship it out, and then other people can bottle it. So yeah, we do custom made kombucha as well. Um, if people often often producers are like, oh, you know, what, I want to test the market without actually having a factory, and so we can produce for them for uh, in kegs. We can produce for them for for a few months, um, and then you know once they're once they're happy with it, then they can go ahead and just do it themselves. We also have a different flavor every week. We uh, you know we operate out of a beer brewery cooperative in Montreal, and uh, with a tap room like a, a thirty. A 32 tap uh, tap room. Uh, that's all beer except for two taps of kombucha. And we actually every two weeks we do uh, you know a local artisanal uh, batch, you know 1,000 liter batch of kombucha. And like for example, a couple weeks ago we just got I think 50 watermelons and we juiced them and we just put them in our kombucha. And so we're always doing experimental batches, and that's really what keeps us it keeps our feet on the ground. So that you know we're never disconnected from you know what it is to make a thousand liters of kombucha because we do it every week. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been really interesting, Sebastian. I wanted to. Um, I said at the beginning maybe we should keep this conversation to ten minutes, but there's been so much interest that uh, I think people in the kombucha business who wanted to learn about this should go to your website, which is manano m a n n a n o v a dot com. In case they're just listening to them podcast and don't look at my blog um, and you've got all the details there of course but I just would like to finish by you're in a unique position because for the last five years and even before that you were involved with the Canadian company you started working with but what are you seeing in terms of the industry um, around the world um, growing is, is, it, is it slowing down in terms of the number of people who you think are starting kombucha companies? Is it um, maturing as an industry? I mean, what's your take on maybe where we've come from and where we're at now and maybe looking into the future? What do you think kombucha uh, produces? Of, uh, what, what are we going to look at over the next few years? Um, I mean, that's a great question. It's something I ask myself every day, right? I go, oh, this is funny or this is weird or, you know, you know, one of the um, one of the most notable things that we've been able to see in the past uh, six months or so um, is uh, is the rise of uh, of of hard kombuchas, right? So kombuchas that have alcohol, which is kind of funny because you know the first five years is, is product is five years of kombucha. You know, the kombucha market was well, we have a product that has alcohol. We're trying to make it non-alcoholic, but now people go, well, let's uh, you know, 
you know, now that, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's not alcoholic and that's kind of been mastered and there's a lot of it on the market, let's see how we can distinguish ourselves by making a hard kombucha. And so, you know, and so what does that mean or kind of where does that come from? I, th- I think people are realizing that, uh, you know, large producers, you know, have this, who basically have this infinite capacity um, to produce, but also, you know, infinite sales capacity and, and all of these things. And these small producers, they, they have a feeling that they can't really compete with that anymore. And so they're kind of looking at different avenues. Um, you know, the craft beer is huge and has not ceased to, you know, grow in the past 20 years or so, even though every year people say, well, it's going to stop growing, but it doesn't. And so I think people are kind of trying kind of see where, that kombucha growth can be sustained. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, uh, and so, so, so what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I think the market, I mean, I think a lot of people think that the kombucha market is saturated. You know, they think that, uh, you know, if they show up with a new brand at a, you know, at a store, they, they might grow a little bit tired of it. Um, and I think, I think, uh, you know, kind of, faceless brands or like, you know, brands that are brands that are nationwide um, have Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, reached a point where it's like, okay, like at at this point, if, you know, if you want to be a big brand, well, it's really just a question of of how much money you have. But I think that, um, or I'd I'd say that my opinion is that there's always going to be room for small tap room style brands, um, you know, that have image, that have an identity, that have a local identity, um, you know, like a farm to, you know, farm to kombucha or farm to glass or farm to bottle type products, which is basically where kombucha came from all along at first, right? That's where, you know, that's where it was born. And that's really, you know, the beauty of kombucha is these, is these uh, you know, these, these artisanal brands. Um, you know, the KBI codes of practice have been, has been encouraging, um, you know, a standard of identity, um, a standard of identity so that these small brewers can be recognized as being higher quality, you know, a slow brew made by a small producer with high quality ingredients locally can be distinguished from a, from a large producer. And I think that's important because, because, um, you know, there is an inherent quality or there's a, there is much more value in a, you know, a locally made product that's, you know, made by artisans that's owned and operated by the same people locally. Um, and so, I think uh, I think there's always going to be room for those brands, you know, a small taproom style brand um, that you know that has maybe 10 or 20 stores that they're selling to, um, and I think people are kind of afraid that there is no more room for that. But I mean, if if the owner shows up at a store and goes, "This is my kombucha. Would you like to sell it here? I live down the street." People are always going to be are always going to be happy for that. And actually, that's a you know, it's a very healthy business as well. It's a, it's a business that can be sustainable. It's a business that's very you know. Um, locally oriented. I think there's always going to be room for that. Whereas, you know, people are looking for the next big thing in uh, kombucha. Like, how can I make a nationwide brand or how can I sell, you know, a million bottles next year? And at that, at this point, I think um, no one really knows what the next, what the next thing is. Um, some people are pushing right. the, the, the hard kombucha thing, the hard kombucha route. I think it's interesting. I think uh, it's going to have its run, but I don't think it's going to be as big as, Standard kombucha. Um, yep. And so, yeah, yeah I, I think people I, I might be what... turning towards water kefir. GTs has uh, GTs has pushed what has been pushing uh, water kefir for the past week or two. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say, you know, I'd say the rest of the market is not going to trail, um, be trailing too much on that front. And I think the uh, water kefir might kind of be the next kombucha. But 
But I, yeah. think, I think the most important is to remember that small artisan brands you know, are super high value and people recognize that. So exactly. I don't know if that answers your question. I, well, I take your point. Uh, you mentioned um, the craft beer industry, and um, you know, I think the statistics are quite interesting because that, that came out of nowhere in the U.S. 20, 30 years ago whenever they started doing it in the, in the garages in Colorado or Oregon. And now there's 8,000 craft brewers in the United States versus probably 600 kombucha brewers. So if it, and, and people like those local craft beers. In fact, you know, they go on holiday and vacations and looking for new local beers like people do. I, I live near the Napa Valley in California, and of course there's people come from all over the world to sample the unique locally produced wine that you can only find in the, the one tasting room in St. Helena or something. And um, I think I, I totally agree. I think uh, whereas it might not be possible to become the next GT and there's going to be two or three mega brands, maybe some of them owned by the big beverage companies now who, um, who, who dominate the, you know, the multiple chains there's so much that can be done in t local tap rooms and uh, farmers markets and a few local stores. So that's great. That's been uh, very instructive, and I think you're you're doing a great service to the industry by taking away, you know, that initial uncertainty and giving people, like you said, everything from a stable brand, a stable tasting ferment to to safety. Um, so it's been really good talking to you, Sebastian, and, uh, and good luck with growing um, Mananova. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Booch News. For more about kombucha, please visit boochnews.com. Uh, and uh, looking forward to uh, to uh, speaking again.